The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone listening to this show has read plenty about battles. There are numerous books about campaigns in the Civil War. Those who are Lincoln enthusiasts can talk politics of the 1860s. But until now, no book has brought it all together to talk about strategy, the use of force to achieve political goals on a national scale as it applies to the Civil War. But in a book that won the Fletcher Pratt Prize for the best Civil War book of 2010, Donald Stoker of the U.S. Naval War College's Naval Postgraduate School does bring it all together. We'll talk today with the author of The Grand Design, Strategy and the U.S. Civil War. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you today from the annex of Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters at uh, on Oxford Street here in Greenville, North Carolina not coming to you from the usual Brewster building on the campus of East Carolina University. So, in one sense, no need to disclaim that this is not on behalf of the university, since I'm not using their equipment today. But it's also not on behalf of the other residents of uh, the Oxford Road headquarters here. My wife and daughters have their own ideas about the Civil War, namely they've heard too much about it, uh, and so I'm not speaking for them. Uh, just for myself, and I know my guest likewise will speak only for himself and not his institution. Well, the reason I'm home, not that uh, uh, people are clamoring to ask, but I will share that I uh, try to keep active, play recreational soccer, do do things to keep moving, but uh, tweaked my back earlier in the week and have been nursing it carefully to heal up so I can play this weekend. And this morning thought, uh, I know, I should put some heat on it, or maybe some, some cold. I can't remember which. Uh, I could have Googled the answer. I 
I could have called my brother Greg, who's a real doctor and can answer useful questions, uh, not a PhD. Uh, but no, instead I just figured, uh, he, that's it, and, and took a nice hot shower, excessively uh, hot, excessively long, and it led to uh, intensely painful back spasms, uh, causing me to uh, uh, sort of crawl about the, the floor. I'm, I'm giving way too much information, so we'll stop here, but uh, unable to get out of the house and, and go into work today. And now I'm sitting with lots of painkillers and ice and feeling much better and able to do the show from home, so all is well. Uh, before getting into our, our talk today, I want to uh, address an issue I raised last week, which was the uh, the search for bodies on the battlefield at New Bern, North Carolina. I would have gone on that today had I not uh, found a way to injure myself. So I'll be back with you another time when I talk to our uh, archaeology professors about what they found. Uh, some students were going to do some research on what might be an unmarked grave of Confederate victims of the Battle of New Bern, March uh, 1862. So we'll we'll hear more about that next time. Next time on the show will be two weeks, no, one, two, three weeks from today, April 20th. Uh, next week is Easter weekend, and there will be no live show, a, a rerun for you. And the following weekend I will be uh, in Decatur, Illinois, with the Abraham Lincoln Presenters Association, Association of Lincoln Presenters, ALP, talking to them about uh, about Abraham Lincoln, surprisingly. And so uh, won't be with you then. But we'll be back uh, starting April 20th. Not in any particular order. We have a lot of interesting people uh, coming up in the weeks after that. Earl Hess, who's written many Civil War books, will be joining us. His most recent one is on the war in the West. Lawrence Kreiser, author of Defeating Lee, A History of the Second Corps, the Army of the Potomac, uh, will be joining us uh, at some point in the, the rest of the, the, this season. Keith Erickson has written a unique book about Abraham Lincoln and his memory, and it's hard to write anything unique about Lincoln after all that's come out. That'll be very interesting. Uh, we'll have Christian McWhirter talking about music in the Civil War, uh, Thomas Sabatke on morality in the Civil War, all kinds of interesting things. Uh, hoping to get Mark Neely to join us. Uh, that has been a very long quest of mine. Uh, Mark is a a friend and always uh, cooperative, but his schedule has been been busy, and I, we haven't been able to line it up. Hopefully, we'll get that before the end of the, the semester. So, lots of interesting people ahead. Uh, to keep track of that, go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, Mark Gaffney runs that website, which gives you the latest as to who's going to be on the show and links to who's been on the show. And you can find the uh, PayPal donation button there. But I thought I would try an experiment this week rather than uh, pleading for your money. All your money is always welcome. Uh, I, I've been working recently on a, a book chapter dealing with the campaign, the Union campaign uh, to take Chattanooga. Maybe calling it the campaign to take Chattanooga is too strong uh, a phrase. Uh, but the operations uh, involving Chattanooga, Tennessee, in the summer of 1862, after Shiloh, uh, before Bragg's invasion of the North, when uh, O.M. Mitchell's portion of, the, of, of Buell's army was, was sort of flirting with the idea of capturing Chattanooga, and no one else seemed interested. And we'll talk with our guest about that today, I think. Uh, well, I'm writing about that campaign, and 
uh, Dave Powell, a, a friend of the show, a friend uh, of mine from uh, well back, recently sent me some good source ideas, and I thought, let's try social media. So if you know of any interesting material on operations in mid-Tennessee in 1862, uh, particularly dealing with Chattanooga on either side, any papers, letters, diaries, or if you've just read anything interesting in the secondary literature that uh, strikes you as, as worthwhile, uh, feel free to send that. Uh, you can put it on the Facebook page for impedimentsofwar.org. Send it to my email here at East Carolina University. It would be really fun to be able to write an acknowledgement to uh, a show audience uh, collectively. Uh, so we'll see what, what kind of research. Uh, tips and, and hints will, will show up that way. Well, enough uh, chatter. Very much want to get onto our, our show today. Our guest is the uh, professor of strategy and policy at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, part of the U.S. Navy War College. Uh, his name is Donald Stoker. Don, are you there? Yes, thank you for having me. I appreciate you having me. Well, d delighted you, you could could join me here. Um, professor of Strategy and Policy is a really cool title. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it, what, it looks cooler than it is. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get to do? Uh, basically, I teach a I teach a class called uh, Strategy and War, and sometimes it's called Strategy and Policy, depending on which versions of it that we teach. And it's part of uh, the Navy's Joint Professional Military Education Program which means that at a certain point in uh, an officer's career, they're required to do certain educational uh, wickets, that they, certain educational wickets they have to jump through. And there's a series of courses that we teach that are designed uh, to prepare them to be on a staff and to get them to think beyond the tactical and, and get them to start thinking about operational and strategic concerns and political concerns as well. And the course that I teach is... Uh, one of the one of those courses that that's in that sequence of classes they have to take. So that sounds very much like the the book you've written. Did the book grow out of uh, teaching that class? Uh, yes, as a direct result. Of course, and funny, we don't even teach the Civil War now, which is why I, I got interested in the Civil War. I'm not originally trained as a Civil War historian, but I became interested in it because uh, we were teaching it uh, when I first uh, uh, came here in '99, and. Um, the way that we deal with uh, way, way our course is structured, we teach things as a, as, a, as case studies. Meaning, you know, we we start off with some military theory, you know, Cloud with Sun Tzu and some others as kind of something to bounce ideas off of and give us some some vocabulary for doing analysis. And then we look at wars as case studies, and we look at the, we look at several different themes: you know, civil military relations, a social context, and. You know, but also, well, what are they actually trying to do to win the war? The, the nutshell theme for the course is how to win wars. Now, sometimes we look at how to lose them, you know, as well <laughs> in the process of doing that. But we want to look at we look at wars and try to extract lessons from them. And we usually spend one week on each on each war that we look at, and the case studies vary from time to time. But we were doing the Civil War uh, as one of the case studies, and that's how I became interested in it. What was your uh, background before that? Uh, uh, how, how did you get a job at the, the NPS? Uh, divine intervention uh, is, <laughs> is helpful. Uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a great job. Being here is a great job. Uh, my PhD is in history, 
uh, largely European military and diplomatic history, but I did fields in American foreign policy and American history and, and stuff like that as well, uh, kind of mixing them together. Uh, but I was fortunate enough to go to graduate school with someone who had uh, worked for the worked for the Naval War College, and my professor uh, as well had uh, Paul Halpern. He had taught for the Naval War College as well, and so those things, uh, you know, helped uh, greatly to get this job out here. So it's it's a great place to be. And it, the students are particularly interesting. Uh, I taught some, you know, like most people that do what we do, I taught undergrads as well, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. But it's interesting when you're teaching, sometimes the students are, you know, 40-ish. Uh, the average age of our students is probably around 30. Most of them have families. And we also have not just naval officers, but we have, you know, uh, officers from the other services as well. And, of course, for the last last few years, there's been a lot of, you know, several wars. And so it, the experiences that they bring to the classroom are, are very interesting uh, often uh, the number of things that they've done and the things that they've seen it's i learn uh, far more from the students than they probably learned from me it's always educational for me each term talking to them that that's when it's teaching fun i would say that's true in almost any classroom that we always learn from our students yes. but to have a, a rich audience like that of people with with recent experience i think the closest i recently came at uh, east carolina was having a a veteran who had served in the uh, the ceremonial uh, horse cavalry unit uh-huh. and was able to talk to us about how horses behaved in formation uh, uh-huh. from experience, not yeah. from the book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's very rare. You know, I've had guys in my class that have done ten combat deployments. Uh, that that's <laughs> that brings a completely different dimension. To yeah, it, it yeah. boggles my mind when they when they when they tell me that and then start talking about what they've done. I mean, ten ten combat deployments since two thousand. 2001, some of them. So. Did you find, in, in terms of the Civil War then, did you find that the the experience that your students brought back from Iraq or Afghanistan had, you know, could relate to Civil War experiences? Hmm. No, I've never really thought of that, and it's been so long since, so many years now since we taught the Civil War, um, that I don't know that I can honestly answer that question. I know that the experiences they have uh, in, when, they, when we teach the other case studies that we teach, whether it's American Revolution or Vietnam and so on, particularly we talk about command issues uh, and, and trying to organize and to get things done. And, and a lot of times you'll see them shake their head and they'll tell you, oh, this happened to me in Afghanistan. It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> so, or this happened to me in Iraq. It's exactly the same thing or very similar. So there's certainly... Uh, which to me shows the strength of our course that actually the things we're talking about are real. You know, it's not just you know, pie in the sky, you know, academic stuff. It actually says yes, these are the ex- similar experiences that you see in the past that are, are still repeated today, and, and at least similar experiences. Well, well, let's uh, talk about your book. One of the interesting things, really striking things about it, when I first uh, began with the introduction, was your uh, observation that there really has never been a book about strategy in the Civil War. And I began racking my brain and thinking, well, you know, was it Archer Jones wrote about the Confederate High Command and, of yeah. course, books on every general, uh, you know, biographies of Halleck and, and Grant and anyone else who held uh, overall command. But is it there really is no book on strategy, I guess. Yeah, there are a lot of them that, you know, touch on things and that bring out some some good things. But, you know, I think one of the 
more useful things, maybe the only useful thing some would argue that my, my book does, is that there's a synthesis of this in that in that respect, and also you know looking at it from from both sides of the of the the fence as well. You know, like Archer Jones's uh, Hathaway and Jones's book, uh, How the North Won, a great book in, in many ways, but it primarily focused on the Union and the way that they look at things. I think I think they don't quite look at things the way that we do, and I had some other issues as well I mean, it's a, with it, but it's a great book overall, and it's one of the books that, that you know, definitely touches on some of the, uh, uh, the things that, that we would look at today, you know, that we want to look at in, in classes, but uh, I hope, you know, I originally, when I first started out to, to, to do this book, um, I started out looking, just trying to get better things for my students to read, things that I thought were more suitable for the ideas and for the things we wanted to address. And as I looked around as well, I could find little snippets of things or an article here or there or books that, you know, would touch on some of it, but nothing that really gave us a, a big picture uh, of it. And I was originally going to write a book, you know, 60,000 words uh, from secondary sources. And then they ended up writing a book that was 200,000 words from largely primary sources. So much for planning. You know, we would teach in the classes, you plan, then you don't get what you're <laughs> The same thing. Because I didn't think that they were addressing quite what, we wanted to address, and plus you never know what you're going to get into when you start writing the book anyway, as you know. That's yeah. true. Well, let's start with definitions. Um, when, when you say this is the first book that really focuses on strategy, what, what does strategy mean in, in this book? Uh, to me, and you'll certainly find some good arguments against this, but uh, for us, a strategy means looking at the larger use of military force. I mean, looking at the big ideas... You know, not looking at how the battles are fought, but why the battles are fought. Not looking at necessarily how the campaign or operations are mounted, which is important because that's how you're implementing the strategy. But the why behind it. What are the ideas driving it? Are you trying to attrition the enemy? Are you fighting a Fabian war as George Washington did? You know, are you trying to do exhaustion in, in a bigger sense? And what is the combination of all of these things you're doing? You know, how are you, how are you using your military power to get what you want out of the war? Is this something that people studied before going to war? Did, did, was, was this taught at West Point in the 1840s, 1850s? There's some, there seems to me, to me some argument on the literature in that, but the general consensus as far as teaching is that most of the things at West Point they're taught are tactical. And that, that's my impression of it. I'm sure that there would be others that would take issue uh, with that. But considering the way the course structure and what the courses are designed to do and what the curriculum is designed to do, then that... That is primary the focus of it, and plus part of the problem too with writing a book like uh, this is that the way that uh, the way that uh, people that study this stuff in the 19th century and even arguably you know earlier and of course you know, to now even the problem is getting the definition of the words and what they mean by these words and the the what the part of the problem I have is trying to, in some ways I'm forcing what they do into an analytical mold in order to try to understand it better because they don't always define the word strategy the way we would do. Uh, they would, you know, sometimes you'll see in the correspondence, and you've probably certainly seen it as well, they, talk, they write about military policy. Well, often they're writing about military, what we would define as strategy, or, or they're talking about a campaign. So that's always part of the problem with trying to uh, decipher or, or analyze what is going on exactly and trying to fit it into the mold because, you know, well, what does he actually mean? What does General Grant mean when he says this? You know, how does it apply to what we mean today? How do we make that, that transfer into the information from one, one to the other? 
Well, Don, we're going to take a short break and come back. And, and when we return, I want to ask you about uh, strategy at the beginning of the war, what, what strategy each side brought into the war, if any. Okay. We'll start with that when we return, talking with Don Stoker, author of The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person think about that for a second almost everyone wants to be better but how does one go about doing that One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Donald Stoker, author of The Grand Design, U.S. or Strategy in the U.S. Civil War. It's a book, uh, a, a hefty and very handsome book from Oxford University Press that looks at the strategy of both sides in the war it tells the story uh, of the war chronologically, but with a, an emphasis on what they were trying to do, uh, as, as Don put it in our first section, to win the war, uh, basically. What, uh, what were the, the big ideas? Don, when, when the war begins, since neither side expected a war, uh, certainly didn't have uh, plans for, for, uh, at West Point for suppressing half the country in rebellion, uh, Confederacy doesn't have a military academy. Nobody, nobody's ready for this. Uh, what what strategies do they come up with, if any? Well, that that's a hard. Well, it's not a hard question to answer, but it's a it's a you know first for us what we would do is to, in teaching this say okay before we even do that what do they want to get out of it and obviously for the Union initially in the war Lincoln you know preservation of the Union for the Confederacy uh, well they want independence okay so how are you going to get this well. Uh, the Union, one of the things that sets the Union apart is that Lincoln's leadership here, which, you know, of course, as you know, so much has been written about, he very quickly, you know, early goes to his generals, particularly Scott, and says, okay, how do we, what do we do here? And there are a couple of smaller you know, things bandied around, but the, the big plan, the most famous plan, you know, becomes known as a Scott's Anaconda plan. That's the first 
you know, real approach where uh, the well-known one where you'll push a column down the Mississippi, try to cut the, the, the Confederacy in half, but also the blockade element of it. Now, Lincoln's not particularly interested in this plan in, in some respects because it's not going to very quickly you know, win him the war. It's obviously a plan for a long war, and part of the understanding behind the plan and part of the misconception uh, from it is that um, there's this assumption on the part of Scott and some of the other uh, Union leaders that there are these deep wells of, of pro-Union support in the South. And so if you just give some time, if you go slow, be patient that these, these, all these Unionists that are being suppressed by these, just this radical minority will rise up, and that will you know, then produce a, a quicker uh, turnaround of events. And, so, and Lincoln certainly shared that view early in the war. So, yes. so uh, that well, you mentioned the blockade was part of this, and one thing that I uh, learned from reading this was the importance of the blockade board, which yes. doesn't get a lot of press otherwise. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, and I, I have to I think Kevin Weddle's work, which you know really deals with that for for pointing that out to me. Yes, it's basically a board of uh, naval officers and, and scientists, Union scientists, that uh, one of the, the more more intelligent things done, and unfortunately didn't last, but just for a few months, but they basically did, did analysis on uh, the, the Confederate coast of saying, look, how are we we're going to do this blockade? What are we going to do? What do we need to do? What ports do we need to seize? You know, and so on. And this becomes one of the, the primary, the starting method for implementing uh, the blockade. Uh, and it's 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 almost like a, a staff today, uh, in some respects, a naval staff or a general staff actually saying, "Okay, how are we going to do this? Let's look at the problem. What do we mean by this? How are we going to get it done?" You know, very useful construction. Unfortunately, I think in October of '61 they basically said we don't need this anymore, which I think was probably unfortunate for the Union's war effort. Now, the Confederacy. Uh, we talked about the anaconda on the Union side. The the Confederates, if they have a strategy, it, it's Jefferson Davis's idea. Yeah. Uh, and initially, they, they they it's the cordon defense. Uh, Cor correct. What does that mean? Why doesn't it work? Well, the, the cordon defense. Davis talks about that in uh, in his in a speech in early 1862, and the Confederacy kind of defaulted into doing this. Uh, I could not myself find evidence that it actually has a, a, a direct desire to construct this cordon, which meaning basically they decided to defend everything and have packets of troops all around uh, the perimeter of the uh, Confederacy. And, and from the Confederates' perspective, this makes perfect, perfect sense. They, they're trying to uh, establish their sovereignty over this territory. They're trying to exert the control of the Confederate government over it. Uh, the locals or local areas are worried about uh, you know an invasion from the north, so you know they they want to protect themselves. So it makes perfect sense why they do it. But the difficulty of it is is that you really are not strong enough to defend much of anything that way because your strength is so dissipated. And Davis himself talks about that later. He says, "Well, we tried to defend too much, but politically, Davis doesn't have much choice." You know, in the beginning of the war, then to do that, they want to protect slavery. They're worried that if the Union comes into anywhere, it'll destroy the slave system. Local governors want to be protected, demand to be protected. So, uh, Davis's hands, in many respects, politically, uh, he just doesn't have much choice other than to do this. If uh, I, it's not really a hypothetical, uh, given the, the political situation, there isn't much choice. But could Davis have done something more militarily effective, in your judgment? Mm. 
I don't know if he could have overcome the political weight to do that. I mean, I think he probably could have in some respects and to start concentrating troops in some key areas uh, more quickly. Uh, but I, I, it took basically a disaster for them to get them to do anything else when the cordon started coming apart. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, he could have, you know, physically, if he doesn't have the to deal with the political aspects of it, but could he have overcome the political aspects of it? I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Another distinction you draw between the North and South is the difference in command structure and the relationship between politics and uh, military. I mean, Davis sees himself as a military man. He's a West Pointer. Lincoln is about as unmilitary a politician as you can have. Uh, how how do they compare in terms of how each of them relates to to the military establishment? Well, Lincoln um, you know, obviously said not much. What was it he described as military experiences? You know, fighting fighting mosquitoes or something like that in the mm-hmm. Black Hawk War for a couple of years or something. Yeah, that, that was about all he did. <laughs> and, and he doesn't have uh, uh, he doesn't he's not afraid to go to his generals and to get advice. In fact, he insists upon them giving advice to them. He wants them to it. To give it to them, he wants them to tell the tell them how tell him how to win the war. Uh, there's this just raw wisdom that you have there with Lincoln. He's smart enough to know what he doesn't know, you know, and, which I think is very critical. Uh, and he's not afraid to listen to someone else's advice. But uh, Davis, uh, I think part of the problem, and there's certainly people that could argue against this, that that he thinks he knows everything already as far as uh, the military realm. He doesn't need advice. At least, you know, at some in some senses, from uh, his military advisors, because well, he went to the same school, right? He it was got as much combat experience as a lot of the other ones. You know, he was a, a very good Secretary of War, you know, and, and so on. So he he can't learn from this, and he takes far too seriously. I don't know if that's the correct way to put it, but he takes very seriously the the constitutional element uh, where the 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 president is the commander in chief. Uh, to him, that meant not only commander-in-chief, but general-in-chief as well, which meant that he does not use his secretaries of war very well, which means now he accumulates only the, not only the political duties, but a lot of the duties that normally a secretary of war uh, would uh, have. He doesn't appoint a general-in-chief until 1865. By then, it's a little late. Vetoes uh, the bill for that, won't allow the formation of a general staff, you know, which which could have helped as well, because he looked at these things as being potential assaults on his uh, on his authority, and so that that I think ends up being a very difficult problem for for the, just the management element of the war, and deciding what to do uh, with the military forces that you're going to have. Uh, whereas Lincoln would give more leeway to his generals. In some ways, Davis would, but in some ways, you know, he wouldn't. As well, he accumulates so much power and control in his hands, it's really too much for one man to handle so many different tasks, I think. Lincoln at one point, a couple points, I wrote an article about this once, uh, uh, considered being the general himself. And, and as you write, he, he serves as the de facto general-in-chief for a few months in 1862. Yeah. But he, he has a much different understanding of the relationship of, of political leadership and military leadership, which works to his success. It also ties in with his relationship, uh, maybe it grows out of his relationship with uh, George McClellan, yeah. uh, the, the Union's commander of the Army of the Potomac and then General-in-Chief. Uh, McClellan is, has to figure high in any account of strategy in the Civil War. What, uh, and he has his detractors and his supporters. 
Where do you fall on, on, on his strategic ability? Uh, it's always dangerous when we start talking about McClellan. <laughs> he, he is the, if you say something good, here's where I've gotten myself in trouble a couple of times. I think as a strategic thinker, uh, McClellan is probably one of the better, uh, arguably the better, uh, of the Civil War generals. But he's also one of the few of them uh, until really 1864, for Grant and then Halleck, of course, is in the position, is one of the few that's actually put in a position to say, okay, how do we fight the whole war? You know, most of them aren't giving, most of the generals in the Civil War aren't given that type of command authority. Sometimes Lee's criticized for not coming up with uh, a plan for fighting the whole war. Well, he's never given that responsibility, you know, until 1865, and by then it's too late. Uh, but I think as a, a strategist, McClellan's plans uh, are often often very, very good. He takes into account uh, the means that it's going to take to do this. He understands uh, the necessity of having uh, mutually supporting operations over over the entire uh, theater of the war. Uh, but the difficult, and I think, and, and often his plans that he draws up in 61 and 62 for fighting the whole war uh, most of the time in the literature they're overlooked or they're relegated to one paragraph where they talk about this plan and say, oh, this is now completely abandoned and goes away. And what I found uh, from reading the, the primary documents that this wasn't the case. When he draws up this first big plan of his in 1861 uh, when he comes to, uh, uh, comes to uh, Washington, you know, this multi-pronged plan for, for executing the whole war, uh, this very much is an underpinning of his thought uh, for the rest of the time he holds a significant command. The problem ends up being with McClellan is that um, I think, and others have argued the same thing, is that as he moved to a higher level of command and a higher level of responsibility, uh, there's a paralysis that hits him you know, in that he won't act, he won't take the action. He's, some would call this a, a, a lack of uh, moral courage, that, that it's just there was all this responsibility that's weighing on him, and someone who's very, very young, you know, he's only in his mid-30s at the time, it's a lot of weight, I think I would break under the weight of it as well. You know, so uh, that it paralyzes him, and he now can't execute. So I would say strategically to me, his thinking is very, very clear, but he needs someone else to be, uh, to be the guy actually running the armies. You know, have him as a general-in-chief, yes, but then have someone else uh, commanding the armies in the field because operationally and tactically he, he doesn't prove to, to have what it takes. Well, you say he doesn't accomplish things partly, he may lack the, the moral courage or the operational or tactical skill or, 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 or nerve, but there's an irony in that, that he doesn't move the Army of the Potomac quickly enough uh, to suit Lincoln or many others yeah. in the north. He, he, he won't attack Johnston sitting there at Manassas across the Potomac River, yeah. and then when Johnston leaves, he, then he won't attack. Uh, he, he lands the army on the peninsula toward Richmond and takes his time there. He, he's never willing to go. But at the same time, as general-in-chief, when he's given this plan to the other prongs of the Union offensive, uh, people like Buell in Tennessee or Halleck and you know, uh, or Buell in Kentucky and Halleck uh, uh, moving into Tennessee, he he runs into the same thing. They won't execute his plan, just yeah. as he won't execute what Lincoln wants him to do. So it's not. To, I suppose you could be Buell, Halleck. All these guys lack uh, the the nerve to do it. But is there something systemic, maybe that that, you, that nobody could have got everyone moving once? I'm sorry, I, the the connection was bad. There, I couldn't hear the last part of what you said. 
Uh, I'm thinking if 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 it happens again and again, uh, uh, not just to McClellan, but also to Halleck, also to Buell, also uh, eventually to Burnside and others, is there maybe something in just the way armies are organized in this era that that nobody could get all these problems going at once? No one's got you know instantaneous communications. Uh, they, no one's got uniform staff training like the Prussians had. They can't do it. Yeah, I I don't think it's a, a systemic issue because there are, you know, within a year or two later, they're able to get most of these armies moving at the same time. I mean, there certainly are logistic problems that Buell and some of these other guys have in the in the in the West, you know. But I, I don't think it's anything su- systemic. But I think it's just habitual with with Halleck and Buell as well. And there's just that lack of initiative. Or that lack of aggressiveness, that, that you know, the, that risk taking that you need in, in a commander uh, to actually just go out and do what needs to be done and, and just roll the dice for it. Because eventually you'll have a, a lot of commanders on both sides that are willing to do that, but I think it just takes a little while to, to weed them out. Part of the problem, and some, you know, obviously a lot of other people have argued this before, uh, I think that uh, I think they're burdened down by the responsibility, uh, maybe, as a part of the issue. But also, no one has ever run, you know, a system like this. So it does take it a long time to get up and going. As far as they've never had big commands like this, so maybe, you know, maybe there is in that respect. Uh, maybe the system has a few problems with it. Uh, it certainly creates a, a friction and a drag on it. But it's continuous for month after month after month. Well, you know, I, I, I'm at some struck point, by you how you get up and move. <laughs> Even when armies do move, you give the example in 1862 when the Confederates invade uh, uh, in the Western Theater and Bragg's army moves up from Chattanooga up towards Louisville. Uh, at the same time, you have uh, you know Kirby Smith's army is moving and Humphrey Marshall, and uh, meanwhile Van Dorn's supposed to be doing something, and, and you've got all these uh, different fingers of the hand, in theory, moving at the same time, but they're you don't have the the lethargy that you had on the union side they're all moving but yeah. they're all moving to different purposes yeah so so is it i guess it's it's not until 1864 that you actually see one of these military machines operating smoothly where 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 the union gets everybody going at once well like i think i think though by late oh, i'm trying to remember i just looked at that by late 1862 or early 1863, don't they get most of the Union Army moving except for banks? You know, most of the significant forces are actually pushing. But yeah, I, you seem to have more True. initiative in some respects under uh, under for the Confederate commanders. But the Confederate commanders at that point are also in pretty desperate straits, and they realize that, and they've got somebody pushing them from the top, and they're actually agreeing with them. You know, Lincoln's pushing from the top too, but he still can't get the guys to do anything. You know, so I think maybe that the situation for them is certainly you know more desperate, and they feel like they have to do something to recoup the to recoup the situation that they've got. Uh, once the union gets rid of some of these people and gets in different commanders, um, things do move a little more. But it is difficult, more difficult to do offensive warfare and do it effectively. I think often than to do the defensive type. But of course, what you mentioned for the Confederacy, they're certainly on the offensive there. Yeah, they they they. Uh turn to that uh, frequently. Lee does repeatedly attack. Uh, let me, let's do this. Let's take another short break. I want to come back with a question about uh, uh, some of the, what, what you think might be among the worst or the best strategic decisions of the war. 
Uh, we'll think about that. We'll take a short break. Talking today with Donald Stoker, author of Strategy in the U.S. Civil War. The Grand Design is the title. Strategy in the U.S. Civil War is the title. Uh, he's with us today on Civil War Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, The Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Donald Stoker, author of The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War. We've been talking about the the nature of strategy, the the high-level military decision-making that both sides uh, engaged in to, to answer the basic question, how do we win the war? What is it that we want and how do we achieve it with military means? Uh, a question that neither side really formulated explicitly uh, early on, or at least not on a wide enough scale, uh, so that it, it got worked out by trial and error to a large extent uh, through the first years of the war. And I left with the the uh, question, what what were the worst strategic mistakes or decisions during the war? And uh, in, down in your book, you talk about some some decisions that really worked out badly. Uh, uh, what are some of those mistakes in your judgment? Uh, one of them, and I'll, I'll probably stir a pot here by saying this, is that uh, when Lincoln uh, relieves McClellan as general-in-chief is a, a really bad decision uh, at the time particular. And Lincoln, of course, his motives for it are good. He thinks he's actually doing McClellan a favor. Uh, but at the time, the problem with doing that, and this, and, and Lincoln is, I don't think, as well informed about what McClellan is doing as he should have been, and which is largely McClellan's fault, because he doesn't explain it to him well enough, I think. Uh, just, to, time, just to uh, uh, clarify, this is when McClellan takes the army down to the peninsula, so he's still commander-in-chief of the Army of the Potomac. Commander of the Army of the Potomac, but he's no longer commanding the other armies. Correct. Yes, you're right. That's what you're talking about. Okay. On yeah. That. yeah, he's removed as head of general in chief. Excuse me, as general in chief of the Union Army, but he still remains head of the Army of the Potomac. At that point, McClellan, you know, is a, of course, McClellan is largely disliked. 
uh, though, again, like you said earlier, he does have his uh, defenders. At that point, uh, everything that's going on in the West is working very well to the Union uh, uh, Union advantage. Chattanooga is certainly in danger of being taken, which to me, in my mind, is extremely critical uh, because you take Chattanooga now, you've gotten the gateway into the Deep South, you've cut the rails and so on. Uh, and McClellan, though he's been very reluctant to use his own army, uh, the Army of Potomac, he's actually doing not too bad of a job uh, at squeezing the rest of the Confederacy. And when he goes down to the Potomac, excuse me, takes the Army of the Potomac down to, to the peninsula to fight the uh, campaign against Virginia, what is overlooked is that uh, a lot of the literature will focus on, oh, this is McClellan's idea, just to push uh, up, up the peninsula here. But that is actually part of a larger plan that McClellan is pursuing, where all these other things that are going on in the West are related to what he's doing as well in the East. And since McClellan is no longer a general-in-chief, and since there functionally is no general-in-chief, Lincoln and Stanton sort of, sort of then do the job, uh, all of these pieces that are swirling together to make up the Union war effort, uh, they just spin out of control. There's no one driving the train uh, at that point. And I think that, that is a pretty, pretty disastrous thing, because I think the North has got a chance here uh, in the spring and in the summer of 1862 to maybe end this thing early. Uh, is it a guarantee? Of course not, certainly not. But I think there's a chance here, and by not having this tight control at the top, I think they lose uh, lose the opportunity to make the war shorter than it could have been. Lincoln will later try to make up for that, bring, brings Halleck in to be general-in-chief, but, but Halleck doesn't have what it takes. And uh, Yes, I... Yes, I... <laughs> He's, he's, Eventually, he comes back to to uh, to Grant, and, and then then you have one hand on the throttle. Yes, and and then you see in 1864, and one of the better things, strategic decisions, where Grant actually now does what Lincoln, McClellan, and others, and Grant comes to this idea, I think, very much on his own, rather than rather than what others have done. This idea of simultaneous offensives: the Union certainly has more strength. Use it. You know, use it all at the same time. Hit the Confederacy wherever you can hit them. Put as much pressure them as you possibly can, and at some point it will come apart. And that ends up being you know, one of good and bad. That's certainly one of the better one of the better decisions. Well, that, as Lincoln said, "Those not skinning can hold a leg." <laughs> exactly. uh, every, everybody can do something, uh, exactly. but they all have to act at the same time, and that, exactly. that works. Um, let's look at the Confederate side for a minute. Uh, Robert E. Lee as you point out, is not the general-in-chief of the Southern Army. He only commands the Army of Northern Virginia, so he's not responsible for Confederate strategy. But to the extent strategy happens in Virginia, what, uh, where, how do you see Lee as a strategist? Well, that's a tough question to ask because you end up having to split the how you def- define it. Um, I, I think that Lee was certainly extremely perceptive, extremely intelligent man, and his letters are just wonderful to read. You know, I think he figured out what the uh, the Union, what the Confederacy needed to do uh, to win the war. In the sense that he figured out that that Union will was really pivotal. They had to do something uh, to convince the North to just say we quit, that we're not going to prosecute this anymore, that the cost is just not worth it. And it, it it's pretty clear, I think, from his letters that he figured that out. But the difficulty that Lee has is then, okay, how then do you raise the cost of the war so high that the Union will cry uncle? And that they will stop. Uh, and from and there's some argument on this, obviously, but his decision appears to have been just, well, I got to break, I got to break Confederate Union armies to do this. But the problem with that is that's very, very difficult to do. And uh, I think he would have been brought to try to protract the war. So 
somehow, instead of trying to end it more quickly, doing that. Because I think the, and he says himself, the break in the Union Army is really, really hard. He says that in 1862. You know, it's a lot more difficult than, than some might think. You know, so the, the manpower advantages and the strength of the Union, he's certainly very much aware of that. Uh, I think he takes too many risks by going into Maryland and going into to Pennsylvania because he really puts his army uh, at risk then. And as long as Lee and the other Confederate generals can keep their armies in the field, this war can go on. The longer it goes on, the more likely the Union is to say, okay, the cost is not worth it anymore. And there, obviously some argue that if Atlanta had not fallen in 1864, that you know, maybe Lincoln would not have been reelected, and maybe then the war does end. Uh, it's only a what if, but it it's, uh, certainly was a fear of Lincoln's. Well, but talking about what ifs, uh, could the South have won the war? Could could strategy, let me put it that way, could could different strategic decisions have led to a different outcome? I think so. I think that if the South had had uh, had a good uh, had a general in chief and had a general staff that would actually say, okay, what operations are we going to mount? Uh, to meet a larger strategy that will give us our political objectives. They'd had someone that, that had the, the vision uh, to do that, or, or put someone in, the, in charge of doing it. I think they could have, but I think that they have to plan to protract the war. To me, that's their best chance of doing it. Just, just drag the war out as long as they possibly can, figure out how to do that. But again, though, that's very difficult for the, uh, the South to do, because they are fighting a very determined opponent, and one uh, that uh, is extremely strong and certainly a lot stronger. You know, but that doesn't mean you you can't win. I mean, the American revolutionaries defeated the British, and you know, and the United States didn't do as well in Vietnam as arguably needed to, you know, as well. You know, so, you know, so the weaker side can win over the the stronger side. But of course, every war is different, and you have you know so many things that can go wrong or go right from either side to affect that. When we were talking about Lee a moment ago, uh, you mentioned going into Maryland in 62, Gettysburg uh, to, to Pennsylvania in 1863 may have been overly aggressive. What was he trying to do in strategically in invading uh, uh, Pennsylvania in particular in 1863? Uh, there's, some, there's no clear, he, he never writes it down, and here's yeah. my goal. What do you think he was trying to that, do? What I can gather mostly from um, the literature and somebody people can argue this and and they might very well be right as he seemed to have wanted to to inflict the big blow on union morale uh, by inflicting a severe military defeat and possibly even destroying a union army in the field and the hope being that this would just such shock the union uh his his what he outlines for his operational objectives are very very clear you know in his letters and you know we want to clear the union out of Virginia, we want to feed my men. Uh, I want to feed the Confederate Army on uh, Union resources and clear the Shenandoah, you know, and so on. But there's some argument as to what he really wants to accomplish there. In uh, in connection with the idea of, of of the war outcome turning on strategic decisions, uh, I've, I've had the a lot of fun the last few weeks participating in this uh, grant-funded book discussion group uh, that the American Library Association has been doing around the country. Ed Ayers at Richmond organized it, and uh, so all the groups around the country are reading for last week was uh, Jim McPherson's book uh, on Antietam, when she argues that Antietam was the, the turning point, the, the Confederates' last best chance to win uh, was there, and after that, things things went downhill. A lot of other people would 
say it's Gettysburg and Vicksburg, but you really downplay the importance of Vicksburg in your book. Uh, do you see there being a turning point in the war, and if so, where would it be? Boy, a turning point. That's a tough one to say. No, I... I hmm. Grant's well, let me rephrase it like Andrew a lawyer. Grant's appointment what, what's the last Andrew. chance uh, for, for the Confederates to win, the last good chance for the Confederates to win the war? Uh, l- losing Atlanta to me, mm-hmm. because that ensures that uh, ensures Lincoln's election, probably. So, so maybe maybe the replacing Johnston you know, with Hood, but maybe you still got the same result if you didn't replace him. So, yeah, I, I don't. I think that the con, I think the Confederacy has a chance up until Lincoln's reelection. You know, at that point, there there's no chance. Now, why isn't Vicksburg as critical as many other authors would argue? Uh, to me, uh, one reason that I came to that conclusion was just simply reading the statements of the the Confederate high command and the uh, and others, uh, Davis and others. They looked at it as being bad, but they were like, "Yes, this is bad, but it doesn't keep us from, you know, prosecuting the war." Um, so I didn't see it as critical because they didn't see it as critical. Uh, it certainly is important. You know, the, you know, you do clear the Mississippi, which gives the 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 Confederacy. Uh, Excuse me. Gives the Union more jumping-off points to attack into the guts of the Confederacy, which is what Sherman wanted to do. You know, and but the more important aspect of it to me than the fall of Vicksburg itself is uh, Pemberton's army. You know, a lot of it will go away. Of course, some of it will be brought back. Uh, but the destruction of the army that is more key than to me than the taking of of, of Vicksburg. And unfortunately, for the you know, Union cause, the Confederates do get some of these troops back, and Grant has to fight them again in Tennessee. If if Vicksburg isn't as critical, uh, then then if you were in Halleck's office in 1863, where would you deploy Union forces if not uh, putting the bulk of them going down the Mississippi? Yeah, I think they should have driven straight through Tennessee. They should have done that in 1862. You're you're a friend, Owen Mitchell. <laughs> I'm a great sympathizer with Mitchell. Yeah. <laughs> he, I think he figured it out. <laughs> He, he's quite a character. He's one who inspires the the great railroad chase, uh, locomotive chase. A lot of our listeners are familiar with that yeah. railroad raid. Um, but he, there are other authors who portray Mitchell as as uh, sort of unrealistic, uh, yeah. going around command, ignoring Buell, and going straight to Stanton for his orders. And uh, and and one argument I've read is that. In his effort in 1862, and this is what I, the campaign I was mentioning in the introduction, uh, that he tips off the Confederates to the importance oh. of Chattanooga by uh, going there and lobbing a few shells in uh, while commanding a force too small to hold the place. And then the Confederates reinforce, and by the time Buell gets the whole army there, it's too late to capture it, or at least too late to walk into it. Yeah, but he'd uh, been screaming for reinforcements for weeks before then weeks and weeks, and the Confederates don't reinforce it until, what, late July, early August? And they're sitting at the, within, you know, a couple, what, several days March in April? You know, they're sitting so, there near, within a couple days March at Chattanooga in April? And so there's this yeah. long gap there where, to me, the Union, this is a big, real problem. You know, a big not, missed opportunity. Yes, a huge missed opportunity. Wow. Well, are, are you working on anything else Civil War related? To, Not Civil uh, War related. I'm actually writing a biography of Clausewitz, uh, the Prussian uh, military theorist in general. Uh, well, that, it's a little that, different which, than the Civil War. 
It does, although though no, Coswitz hadn't yet been translated into English, so our Civil War generals wouldn't have read him. But his his principles certainly can be applied with great interest to yes. the Civil War campaigns. Yes, I think so. Wow. Well, Don, I really want to thank you for being on the show. This is a very interesting book. Uh, listeners, you will definitely, if you have an interest in the military side of the war, want to read The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War. It has wonderful maps throughout uh, that make the the, uh, the text clear and will give you things to uh, discuss and argue with at the next roundtable meeting. Uh, so highly recommended. Uh, and Don, thanks for, for coming and talking about it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's fun. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.